What's a farmer's favorite band at this time of year? What? Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> holiday me too i'm so excited do you do like the the horror stuff like the halloween Halloween and halloween horror nights i would love to but i don't got the money for it now i do have a quick funny story um sorry sister that i'm telling this but it's funny (laughs) uh so she growing up my sister didn't like horror movies Mm-hmm. She started getting into them a little bit, and she was so excited to go to Halloween Horror Nights. Okay. Uh, not Halloween Horror Nights. Hollow Scream at Bush Gardens. Mm-hmm. We go. Apparently at the... She was young. She was like middle school. But she was apparently getting overwhelmed. A scare actor jumped out of the bushes, and my sister almost kicked him. Then she realized that maybe this was not the best place for her. Yeah. My mom had to speak to an employee and like, look, she's leaving... She doesn't like this. Is there anything we can do so that way the actors know not to jump out and scare her? Because we were on, like, the back end of the park. Oh, we were okay. near Shikra. Oh, yeah, yeah. And to get to the front of the park during Howl of Scream. Gotta walk all the way around. Mm-hmm. So what the employees had to do was stick my sister in a wheelchair, have an employee go with them, have my mom push her, and they have a flashlight out uh, that would alert the scare actors not to jump out. They have boo, boo necklaces now. They're like way too expensive. They're $30 and you wear them around your neck and you put the light on. It's literally just like a necklace that says on a lanyard. Boo? No, it's like last year they were shaped like pumpkins. This year they were ghosts. It's just like a light up necklace basically. But if, if you have the light up necklace on, it like tells the scare actors not to jump out at you or scare you, but you can't have them on when you go into a house. So you can only use them in scare zones. Which is why, to me, like, 30 35 bucks is way too much money for that. And then they have the opposite, which is an interactive necklace, which is a different shaped necklace with a different color light. And it, okay. it, you turn it on and, like, so scare actors can interact with you more. That's a good idea, especially for people who have sensory issues. What's your favorite horror movie? Silence of the Lambs. Oh, okay. That's a good one. I prefer... Don't get me wrong. Gore movies are good. Like, cult classics, like Scream awesome movie mm-hmm. but i prefer the psychological yeah mind trick mm-hmm. movies yeah I, I was gonna say that one's probably my second i like cabin in the woods a lot i actually have not seen that one oh, it's good it's very it's very like satire on the whole entire horror industry which is- i'm pretty sure i have a family member who's a sound engineer in california and i'm pretty sure cabin in the woods is one of the movies he's worked on Oh, that's really cool. He has his own IMDb page. Oh, nice. Fancy. <clears throat> Fancy smancy. Bougie. <laughs> Sorry, not bougie. In the words of my cousin, there's bougie, burgoise, and then bourgeois. Those What's are the voice. Le- that's just how the word uh, oh. bourgeoisie is spelt. Oh, oh, okay. I see. Yep. Oh. Wait, does the word bougie come from Yes. The- I did not know that. I thought that was just, like, something someone made up one day randomly. No. Um, <laughs> you know those kids and their slang. <laughs> my cousin that came up with that comes up with a lot of funny sayings. Like, when they were young, they couldn't curse, so they would say Puma Nuggets. Or they would use celebrity names, their favorite being Bob Saget. <laughs> and his newest catchphrase is Redneck Woman. What? I have no idea why. How do you... What, where in context is that? 
thing is, I don't know how to use it until the time comes up. (laughs) (laughs) You feel it in your gut. (laughs) The little redneck woman inside of you calls. (laughs) Yep. So... Okay, sure. That's my cousin. All right, that works, right? <laughs> my family has always said we could, we would have a very successful reality show just on the family dynamics. <laughs> okay, anyway. Oh, hold on, I have a sneeze coming up. Bless you. I was always told to look to the light when you want to sneeze, but it's not coming out. Is that, is that a thing? I, I don't know, it's just something in my family. If you look to the light when you're trying to sneeze, it'll make you sneeze. Oh, that's assuming that you have that gene for it. There's like a gene where if you see natural sunlight, you sneeze. Um, it's recessive, so obviously not everyone has it. But my friend has Obviously. It. My friend obviously. has it really bad. Like she opens her blinds and she just starts sneezing. I'm like, are you good? And she's like, yeah, I sneeze every time I see the sun. And I'm like... That's not me. It's just whenever I'm trying to sneeze and it's not coming out, I've always just been told, look to the light. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just thinking of Poltergeist. Go to the light. <laughs> Poltergeist. Yeah, speaking of horror movies, today I am going to be covering a couple of horror movies that were based off of true crime stories. True crime. True crime. I'm sorry, um, that's the caffeine hitting me. Oh, you're good. So the first one, I'm going to say that the, the first one is a little bit more tame, and the second one I will give like a massive trigger warning. So if you if you don't want to listen to the second story, that's fine. We'll see you in the next episode. But <laughs> we will not take offense, I promise. Yes, but the first one is going to be the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, and that inspired the movie called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And that movie was originally released in 1976, and then they remade it in 2014. Trigger warning, sexual assault. All right, so let's get in. So Texarkana is a city located along the border between Texas and Arkansas. And it encompasses the surrounding areas and their blended culture. So it spans about 50 to 60 miles in diameter between the two. The Texarkana Moonlight Murders is also called the Phantom of Texarkana. Occurred over the span of 10 weeks from February 22nd to May 3rd in 1946. So these attacks took place between Miller County, Arkansas and Bowie County in Texas. And in totality, eight people were attacked and five were killed. So let's get into the first attack. On Friday, February 22nd, 1946, Jimmy Hollis, 25, and Mary Jean Larry were returning home from a movie date and parked their car at Lover's Lane. A masked man with a gun approached their car and shone a flashlight at the pair, demanding that they get out of the car. Once Jimmy got out of the car, the masked man ordered him to take off his pants, and while he was doing that, he hit him on the head with a pistol, knocking him unconscious. Got pistol whipped. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's okay. He did. He did get pistol whipped. This is my ADHD. I'm just trying. I'm. <laughs> you, you know you're good. It's been a long day. I went. To, I was at the gym at 9:30 a.m. <laughs> Don't judge me. Mary Jean later told police that. He hit Jimmy so hard on the head that she thought that he shot Jimmy. When, but what she actually heard was his skull fracturing. Okay. Yeah. And then Mary Jean offered the man Jimmy's wallet. And when she did that, he told her, get up and run. And so she ran to the nearest car, which was empty. And then the masked man caught up to her, knocked her down. Oh, sorry. Trigger warning, sexual assault. 
I know that's like way too late into the sentence, but I just we we can add it in earlier. Also, already it's before that. It's already reminded me like the run. It's reminded me of it's very zodiac esque. Yeah, and especially like the couple at Lovers Lane. Yep, that was like it's very zodiac. Yep. I was also thinking that when I was writing this. So she ran to the nearest car, which was empty. The masked man caught up to her. He knocked her down and sexually assaulted her with the barrel of the gun. He then left, and Mary Jean ran to a nearby house and called the police. When she was questioned by the police, Mary Jean said the attacker was black. However, Jimmy said that he was white. So there's like the the main thing like we uh like there's like two main theories. The first theory is that obviously they were both traumatized, and so like maybe they didn't get the best look at the person. And then the second theory was that, which is this is what the police believed more of. But again, this is 1946. But they believed that Mary Jean knew the attacker, and so they she said he was black to throw off suspicion of like someone she might have known. Okay, but you know, because that's dra- so that's something drastically different to get wrong, to get like mixed up between the two. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's nineteen forty six, and we didn't believe women yet, so you know, that's also a big part of it. Um, Did you just say we don't believe women yet? Yeah, they, they okay, <laughs> we didn't believe women in nineteen forty six. All right, next we're gonna jump ahead a month to March twenty fourth. A civilian spotted a car parked at Lover's Lane on U.S. Highway 67 West with two people inside the vehicle. He assumed that the couple had fallen asleep overnight, but as he approached the car, he saw that they were dead. So he called the police, and they identified the couple in the car as 29-year-old Richard Griffin and 17-year-old girlfriend Polly Ann Moore. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. I'm sorry. Repeat that one more time. Yeah. The couple was identified as 29-year-old Richard Griffin and his 17-year-old girlfriend Polly Ann Moore. Yeah. Okay. We're going to just keep going. Not too much else to say about that. They had been shot twice in the car. Richard was in the front seat and Polly Ann was in the back seat. There was also a blanket next to the car covered in blood that was later determined to be where Polly Ann was killed and then she was placed into the back seat. Which, like, that's kind of weird, but. Yeah, just, you know. just a tad. Um, a 32 bullet casing was left behind and ballistics later found out that it was likely fired from a 32 Colt automatic pistol. I don't know that much about guns, but... Yeah, sorry, we haven't covered ballistics yet, because yeah. that's a lot of research. Yeah. Um, but we will, I promise. <laughs> but yeah, so he, there was a bullet casing left behind, and then, unfortunately, they were laid to rest before any type of autopsy could be performed, and no one knows why there wasn't an autopsy, and no one questioned that either, you know, the 40s. <laughs> Fun time. Yeah, I was like, it's fine. Um, and then three weeks later, on April 14th, 1946, 17-year-old Paul Martin picked up his 15-year-old girlfriend, Betty Jo Booker, from a VFW club. Betty Jo's mom was concerned when her daughter didn't come home later that night, and um, also that same night, Paul's body would be found on the side of the road. Oh, jeez. He had been shot four times, once through the nose, once in the back of the neck, once in the right hand, and once through the ribs. Through the nose? Yeah. I'm assuming, like, maybe he, like, tried to look up or away. I like how we immediately think through the nostril. Oh. (laughs) Oh, no, I forgot it could go the other way, which is just straight through the face. I was like, oh, it went up his nostril. (laughs) That's why, oh, 
was like, wait a minute, because that's what I was thinking too. But oh. it makes more sense that it's just like through, through the face. The, no, yeah. It makes a hole in the nose. Yeah. Somewhere. I. Yeah. No, I definitely also thought it went up his nostril. ADHD. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Um. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, Betty Joe's body was found two miles away, behind a tree, with two gunshot wounds: one in the face, one in the chest. Paul's car. Oh. I'm sorry. I just had a loud bang out there. No, everything good. I'm just texting him. Okay. You can continue. Okay. <laughs> I'll um, let you know if he's okay. Okay. <laughs> Paul's car was found three mi- more miles away from Betty Joe's body with the keys still in the ignition. That's like so weird having... So one's on the side of the road, one's two miles away, and the car's three miles away from Betty Joe. So it's like... There's two miles in between the bodies, and then the car is... So the car is five miles away from Paul, and Paul would have been the driver. And the keys are still in the ignition. So, like, why... You know, that's, like, a lot of I don't think Paul would have ran five miles. No, absolutely not. That's a lot of mileage to run. But, like... So now we're thinking, like, did he drag them five miles away? Or just move the car afterwards? And then, again, Betty Jo was still two miles away, so did she run two miles before the dude caught up to her? You know what I mean? She's like, only she's seventeen, but I. Occam's no, she's race, fifteen. Fifteen. My bad. Seventeen. Yeah. My bad. I mean, they could have <clears> been like <throat> athletic. You know what I mean? Occam's but, razor, though. Most the easiest solution is usually the actual one. He drove the vehicles and dropped them off. Oh, and just like dumped the bodies out. Yeah, yeah, that's that's more likely. And then just dumped the car, yeah. And then the last attack was on May third, nineteen forty-six, and this crime scene is like deviates the most from the other ones. So during that night, Virgil Starks, 37, was shot twice in the back of his head through a window while he was reading the newspaper. His, that's, sorry, that that is already different. Yeah, like it's not... It's not Lover's Lane. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, he didn't really seem to have an issue with confrontation. Because all of mm-hmm. these seem incredibly confrontational, mm-hmm. but shooting someone from outside of their house seems non-confrontational. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, you don't even go in their house to... Yeah. His wife, Katie Starks, 36, heard the glass breaking and rushed to see what happened. When she saw her husband, she ran to call the police, and the killer shot her twice in the face through that same window. Oh, my God. She managed to escape to her neighbors and inform them that her husband was dead, and she actually made a full recovery from her injuries. Seriously? Mm-hmm. After two shots to the head. She's alive, yeah. That is insane. Well, not anymore, but she was alive after I figured. <laughs> but just, that's insane. Yeah. Must be, she's a heck of a fighter. Yeah, she is. She, like, ran to her neighbors and then, like, told them her husband was dead and then just, like, passed out. And then, like, honestly, and especially in the 40s, that kind of medicine, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. To be able to heal from that. The only thing that was left at the scene was a black and red flashlight outside their house. And it's unknown where. Like, you know what I mean? There's nothing remarkable about it to It's a black and red flashlight. Yeah. Efforts to catch the murderer were extensive, with over 400 suspects questioned and a trap set up for the killer. And then um, the thing is, so they, they hired... Two undercover cops with mannequins posed as teenagers at Lover's Lane. And they did this at the end of May because he was killing about every two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. But the thing was, the killer never struck again. 
So the townspeople were terrified during this 10-week period, and the purchase of guns, guard dogs, blinds, and locks skyrocketed, which is where the movie... Guns, guard dogs, and what? Blinds. I heard logs. I was like, what are you going to do with a log? Pick it up and smack them? Locks. That's what I heard. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) Yeah, and that's kind of where, like, the movie really hits the point of, like, people being terrified of what happens at, at night. The killer has never been identified, but there have been two suspects of the murder. Um, 18-year-old H.B. Tennyson and 29-year-old U.L. Swinney. That's a wide age range. I know. It is very wide. But H.B. Tennyson committed suicide two years after the killings and, in his suicide note, confessed to the Paul Martin slash Betty Jo Booker and the Starks murders. So the last two. However, a friend of Tennyson came forward and said that they were playing cards the night the news of Paul and Betty Jo was announced. So, he kind of has an alibi. And then the last... Hey, that's debatable. I mean, yeah, I guess. But, like, it's... And especially 18. Like, they, these crimes are fairly organized. I don't think an 18 year old is that organized. I don't... I really don't think so. Yeah. So, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't seem super probable. Um... And then next, you all, Swinney was a known car thief in the town, and every night of an attack, there was also a report of a stolen vehicle. Okay. In the same area. Swinney's wife was seen driving a stolen car, and they were both arrested, and his wife confessed that he is the killer, but the details that she gave about the crimes were too inconsistent, and there wasn't enough evidence to actually prove it. And then, eventually, he was sentenced to life for Grand Theft Auto and died in 1994 in prison, so... Okay. He was... And he never, he never like, corroborated that he did it? No, he never... Didn't think so. Yeah, he never admitted anything, so... Of course. But that's, that is the short little Texarkana murders. It's very Zodiac-esque. Yeah, it's, it does have very similar remnants, and I, I... It just had more sexual aspects to yeah. it i'm wondering if like the zodiac killer knew about that prior to his his crime did the texarkana uh killer ever like reach out to police no okay he just mm-hmm. did those five attacks and then never showed his face again so i i'm not or four attacks technically because they were in, all in pairs okay yeah so i'm not entirely sure and it's still unsolved to this day so we'll never know really and that sucks. Yeah. The next one I'm going to be covering, and I will massive, massive trigger content warning. We will be talking about abuse, child abuse, sexual abuse, torture. This one is a really, really, really rough story. Oof. So if you would like to skip to the next episode, please feel free to do so. There's actually two movies that were made about this. One is more of fantasy horror, and one is more of horror documentary. Is the fantasy horror Midsummer? No, it's The Girl Next Door. And then the more documentary one is An American Crime. I have seen An American Crime. I watched that as a kid, and I don't know. It has Elliot Page. Maybe I've seen it. I Um, I saw it as a kid, and there's one really specific core memory that traumatized me as a child, but I thought it was... I didn't think it was a true story. I thought it was a fictional story until I heard this case on a true crime podcast and I was like oh that was real now I'm even more my first horror movie was The Shining oh that's a rough one to start with and I'm sorry mom but it was so because my mom listened to the podcast it was so awkward sitting next to my mother watching the scene 
of the nude old lady and young lady. Oh, yeah. So awkward saying next to my mom for that. <laughs> yeah, my mom watched an American crime even though she doesn't remember it. And even though she doesn't remember it? <laughs> that sounds like my mom. Yeah, and I, there's like, I'll, I'll tell you when the scene is because it happens in the story, mm-hmm. but like there's one scene that I watched and it, it has haunted me forever. Anyway, so those both came out in 2007, which is kind of funny that they both made a movie about the same story that was released in the same year. Yeah. But the girl next door, again, uses fake names and some of the details are different. Amer- an American crime is a little bit more factual or, like, close to the, you know, story. So, what it's based off of. This is the story of Sylvia Likens, and it is a incredibly tragic story, so... The name sounds familiar. Yeah, I'm just gonna get in, because yeah. no part of this is happy. Sylvia Marie Likens was born on January 3rd, 1949, in Lebanon, Indiana, and was the third of five children to her parents, Lester Cecil Likens and Elizabeth Francis. She's the middle child of two sets of fraternal twins, her older siblings being named Daniel and Diana, who were two years older than her, and the younger pair being Benny and Jenny, that were one year younger than her. Mm-hmm. Jenny had polio as a child, and has a limp and a metal brace that she has to wear on her leg. Lester and Elizabeth were carnival workers that traveled frequently during the summer months around the state. So her parents were carnies. They moved around often and struggled financially. And the boys would travel with the parents to assist with their jobs. But Jenny and Sylvia would often stay behind for school and they would stay with their grandmother. Sylvia did oddball jobs to make extra money for spending and to help out her family through babysitting, running errands, ironing chores, laundry, stuff like that. Sylvia was called Cookie to her friends and was described as friendly, confident, and lively girl. And they also said that she was very like close with her siblings and that one of her teeth, like one of her front teeth was missing because she was roughhousing too hard with her brothers and it got knocked out. And so she never, like, if you see pictures of her, she never smiles with her mouth open. She always smiles with her lips closed. Okay. In early 1965, so Sylvia was 16 years old, Lester and Elizabeth got divorced. And then in July of that year, Lester decided to go traveling again with the carnival. At this time, Elizabeth was arrested for shoplifting. So now the kids basically don't have a a house. Um, So Danny and Benny were placed with their grandparents. So this is where I couldn't find. So Diana does play a very minor part in this story, but I have no idea where she went. Because Danny and Benny went to their grandparents, and Sylvia and Jenny were put in the care of a family friend. But it doesn't say where Diana went. Um, I don't know if she went with that. I have no idea. But Diana, no, no clue. She does come back into the story, though. And the family friend that they were in care of was named Gertrude Beniswuski. Gertrude was just as poor as the Likens and had seven kids of her own from three different failed marriages. So I'm going to list all the kids. There's a couple that you will definitely want to keep named in your head. So the first one is Paula, who's 17. Stephanie, who's 15. John Jr., who's 12. Marie, who is 11. Shirley, who's 10. James, who is eight, and Dennis Lee Wright Jr., who is one and a newborn. Lester said that he would pay Gertrude $20 a week to, quote, straighten his daughters out and care for them. So in today's math, because I did the math, $20 is about 195 in today's money. 
Oof. Which is like a lot of money. Um, yeah. Yeah, but back then they were saying that Gertrude's rent, they lived in Indiana, and her like rent for her house was $55 a month. So her rent was like 300 bucks at the most in today's money, which is crazy. For the first two weeks, the sisters were treated kindly. However, Sylvia and Paula seemed to always kind of butt heads. After about two weeks, Lester's payments started coming in late. So he wouldn't pay on time or like it, the check would come, but it'd be like two or three days late. Mm-hmm. Um, Gertrude screamed. I know like we don't curse, but I'm just going to curse for the sake of this quote. No, if it's a quote, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. So Gertrude screamed, I took care of you two little bitches for nothing. At Jenny and Sylvia, grabbed Sylvia and dragged her into a room and closed the door. Sylvia was screaming while Jenny sat outside the door crying, listening to her. The money came the next day, but the abusive behavior from Gertrude had just begun. Soon after, Gertrude began beating Sylvia and Jenny when their dad's payments came in late. She would beat their bare buttocks with a quarter inch thick fraternity style paddle or leather belts that she got from her ex-husband who was a cop, even going as far as distributing 15 lashes when Paula accused the sisters of eating too much food at dinner. Just for that? Yeah. Oh my god. Gertrude was a thin woman standing at five foot six, but only weighing a hundred pounds. So when she was too weak, Paula would step in to continue the beatings. By mid-August, Sylvia had become the sole focus of Gertrude's abuse. Sylvia would get beat for exchanging soft drink bottles for change at the grocery store. And Gertrude even accused Sylvia of stealing a candy bar that she bought from the store and burnt her fingertips with matches. <gasps> That's horrible. Yeah. And she was like trying to make some money to help like you good. That was the chair. I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> she was like taking because like back then like sodas would come in like the glass bottles. Yeah. And so she was like selling the glass bottles back to the store to help like pay for her and her sister. Gertrude would also starve Sylvia, force feed her leftovers, or make her eat spoiled food from the trash can. In late August, Sylvia claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach that she said she met when her family lived in California. Which, like, you know, she's 16. Like, you know, kids say stuff like that all the time. It's, like, such a teenager thing. Yeah. And then Gertrude asked Sylvia if she had ever done anything with a boy. And Sylvia did not understand what that question meant. Because she had thought, like, you know, hung out with a boy type thing. Yeah. So she said, I guess so. She told Jenny and Stephanie afterwards that she once laid under the covers next to a boy. And when Gertrude asked why she did that, Sylvia replied, I don't know. A few days later, um, also, like, a little background, like, Gertrude is, like, really, really religious, so a lot of, like, the abuse comes from, Okay. yeah, a lot of, like, the stuff about asking about, like, if she's been with a boy and stuff is, like, religious undertones. A few days later, Gertrude told Sylvia, you're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia, it looks like you're going to have a baby. Oh my god. Gertrude then kicked Sylvia in the genital region, and Paula, who was three months pregnant at that time, how old was Paula again? 17. Okay. They're about the same age. Okay. Knocked Sylvia out of her chair, screaming that she wasn't fit to sit there. Um, at a church event, Gertrude force-fed Sylvia a ton of the hot dogs that they were serving until she got sick. 
When she got home, she threw up and Gertrude made her eat her vomit to not waste <gasps> good food. I'm all... This is horrifying me so much. Oh, yeah. No, it gets worse. This is not the worst part, so I apologize oh. in advance. Yeah. Gertrude encouraged her kids to abuse Sylvia. They would practice karate on her, slamming her into the walls and the floors. They used her skin as an ashtray and would cut her with knives and pour salt in her wounds. And 12-year-old John Jr. forced Sylvia to lick the soiled diapers of the one-year-old clean. Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's horrifying. Afterwards... After, like, this abuse, Gertrude would then put Sylvia in a scalding hot bath in order to, like, baptize and cleanse her. She was probably getting, like, first or second degree burns to a child. Yeah. And again, she's not, like, a... Like, she's a small 16-year-old girl. Sylvia, Paula, and Stephanie all went to the same high school. And, like, so this has been, like, almost four or five weeks of just constant abuse from this family. In retaliation, Sylvia started a rumor that the two girls were prostitutes at the school. Stephanie found out about the rumor after another student had propositioned her as a joke and punched Sylvia over it. And then Stephanie's boyfriend found out about the same rumor. And he attacked Sylvia, slapping her, banging her head against the wall, and flipping her backwards onto the floor. And then when Gertrude found out about that rumor, she beat Sylvia with the paddle. And then there's another one. Paula once punched Sylvia in the face so hard she broke her own wrist. That, punching her. That takes a lot of strength to break your own wrist doing that. Yeah. She punched her like in the, she focused on like the nose and the mouth region. Oh, Jesus. And then when she got a cast after she broke her wrist, she used the cast to continue to beat Sylvia with. That was just giving her more. Yeah, more ammunition. Yeah, unfortunately. And then um, Gertrude repeatedly accused Sylvia of prostitution and promiscuity and occasionally would force Jenny to beat Sylvia if she did not want to get a beating. So she was like, you you need to beat your sister or if you don't, you're going to get the beating, which is horrifying. That's cruel. Yeah. You're asking them to pick. Now the neighborhood kids are getting involved in this. So Coy Hubbard and other neighborhood kids started coming over to the house after school to abuse Sylvia, and they were very much encouraged to by Gertrude. So now not only... What kind of abuse? I'm going to get to it. So not only were her kids actively participating in this, now, like, all of the children of the neighborhood, there were, like, five or six kids that were coming over and abusing this girl. This poor... Just one of them. Yeah. This poor girl. So they would use her as a dummy for judo practice. Oh my god. Yeah, which is horrible. They would lacerate her body, they would burn her with cigarettes, and they would injure her genitals. Like, they'd stomp on them, they'd kick them, and, like, they'd, like, yeah, like, they These kids are, like, becoming psychopaths. Yeah, very easily, sir. So, yeah. And then John Jr., by the way, he's 12. Keep that in mind as I read this sentence. John Jr. once gave Sylvia a bowl of soup and told her she could only eat it if she ate it with her fingers, and then every time she tried to, he would take the bowl away from her. That's, a 12-year-old. That's creative torture. A 12 In the worst year old. way. Yeah, that's horrific. Um, and then, so obviously her body is is not, you know, she's, she's going through it physically and mentally. Is- 
Um, but she started wetting the bed uh, because of probably both physical and mental trauma. And then um, as punishment for wetting the bed one day, Sylvia was forced to strip naked in the living room and insert a glass Pepsi Cola bottle into her vagina while Gertrude verbally humiliated her, telling her that she was showing Jenny just what kind of girl she is. Oh my goodness. Um, Sylvia stole a gym uniform from school since Gertrude refused to buy one for her, and then she was forbidden from attending school anymore. So she didn't have, like, she was 16 when she got pulled out. By the way, all of this happened over the span of three months. Only three months? Three months. She passed in October. She was given to Gertrude at, in July. So this is three months worth of behavior. Um, it sounds like an eternity. Yeah. It, 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 yeah, it definitely does. Um, uh, Sylvia was whipped with a three-inch leather belt and kicked in the genitals and um, burned again. For fi her fingertips were burned again with the matches for stealing the gym uniform. And then three days later, Jenny was also beat with a belt because she stole a shoe for her good foot that didn't have the leg brace on it. Oh my god. Um, and then after prolonged intense beatings, Sylvia was unable to use the bathroom properly and would often wet the bed at night. I'm not surprised. That's a common thing for abuse. Yeah. And Gertrude said that if she wasn't able to control her bladder, that she wasn't fit to live in her house. So she threw her in the basement, tied her up, left her naked without food or water. And then, so here's where it gets really, really bad. We're getting to the, like, the extreme escalation. Um, on October 23rd, 1965, Gertrude made Sylvia stripped naked in the kitchen and carved the words i'm a prostitute and proud of it into her abdomen with a heated needle and that's like the scene that's like burned in my memory from the movie because they show her doing that um and then she instructed her children to hold sylvia down and when she was unable to finish it she made one of the neighborhood kids richard dean hobbs finish the job then Richard and Shirley brought Sylvia back down to the basement and branded the letter S into the, her left breast. Said that they used like an ironing anchor, which I'm assuming is like some sort of C-shaped metal item, but they heated it up and they tried to brand an S, but they did it backwards so it looked like a three instead of an S, like the curve was backwards. So they branded her in the basement and then the neighborhood kids came by later to see and like she was again naked tied up to a mattress and they were able to see the carved words on her body and Gertrude said that Sylvia received it at a sex party and that she would never get married because of it. That night Sylvia told Jenny she believed she was going to die soon. That next day Gertrude made Sylvia write a letter stating that she had run away with a gang of boys that mutilated her body so basically write her own like no um, own like death note um that had mutilated her body and then Gertrude had planned with her son John Jr. to take Sylvia to the woods and leave her there for dead on October 25th Sylvia learned about this plan and she tried to escape and she tried to go out of the front door of the house, but was too weak and dehydrated to do so and collapsed on the floor. Gertrude caught her, force-fed her crackers, and beat her face with a current rod until it was bent into 90-degree angles. 
because she didn't want to eat the crackers. Um, Sylvia was dragged back down to the basement, and later that night she screamed for help for the neighbors until 3 in the morning, and nobody called the police, and neighbors said they heard her. The next day, on October 26, Sylvia was delirious and unable to move and speak, and at that evening at 5.30 p.m., she passed away in Stephanie's arms, and her last words were, Daddy was here. Stephanie started mouth-to-mouth resuscitation while Gertrude screamed that Sylvia was faking it and beat her dead body with a book. Sylvia was 16 years old when she succumbed to her injuries. The police were called an hour later, and they arrived on the scene. Gertrude obviously denied knowing anything about it and made Jenny say that she wanted to stay with her. When like they talked to the kids, Jenny was managed to tell the police, get me out of here and I will tell you everything. So Jenny was removed from the home. Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, John Jr., Coy Hubbard, and Richard Hobbs were arrested. Gertrude initially denied knowing anything about the abuse and then later stated that she knew that Paula was mentally abusing her and Coy was beating her. So she really just said, I'm going to throw my kids under the bus. Jesus. Um, an autopsy was conducted on Sylvia. And she had over 150 separate wounds on her body and was oh extremely emaciated. I, I, I can't see anything else. I know. It's this, yeah, there's, unfortunately, there's not too much else to say. It's horrific. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut. Her fingernails were broken backwards and most of the external layers of skin on her face, breast, neck, and right knee had been peeled or like receded. In death, Sylvia had bitten through her own lips and parts of them were severed from her face. Oh my god. I'm sorry, I'm opening drawers right now trying to find something. The official cause of death was a subdural hematoma, which is a brain bleed due to a severe hit on her right temple and shock, severe and prolonged damage to her skin and subcutaneous tissues and malnutrition were also listed as contributing factors. Malnutrition would have just made everything worse. Yeah, exactly. And, and it would have made the like, pain so much worse. Oh I was going to say the shock girl. of like consistently going through it and rigor was set when she was found. So the pathologist estimated that she was dead long before the actual police call. Um, Gertrude pleaded not guilty by reasons of insanity in court. It it was, this is where it kind of gets muddly because uh, her kids are still minors, obviously. So they're tried in the court of law, but as minors, which sucks because they were not acting like minors. No, they were acting like deranged human beings that should have been tried as adults. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, On May 19, 1966, Gertrude was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. And then this is, like, the interesting thing, because her lawyer even says that there's no way that she didn't do it. Like, her lawyer didn't even believe her saying that she was innocent, which that's never a good place to be. Paula was convicted of second-degree murder because she, when Paula was arrested, so this is, like, also kind of terrifying, but Paula had no remorse for the behaviors that she did. I'm sorry, I just stopped myself live with my glasses. Oh, okay. You good? I'm good. I'm going to try to clean them to see. I'm okay. I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, it's okay. 
Um, Paula had no remorse of any of the things that she had done to Sylvia and admitted to doing it and signed a confession when she was arrested. Psychopath. Mm-hmm. And she was convicted of second-degree murder and also got life in prison. Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, those were two of the neighborhood kids, mm-hmm. and John Jr. were convicted of manslaughter and given two to 21 years in prison because they were minors. That's not near enough. Yeah, that's nowhere near enough. And here's the real kicker. They only did two years in prison before all three of them were paroled in 1968. None of them should be free. Yeah. yeah. The only, like, kind of um, just thing is that pretty much everybody in the story dies very young. That's, like, kind of the only nice thing. Like, I think Paula's the only one that's still alive to this. No, she's not alive anymore. But, like, lived into the 2000s. Let me put it that way. Because this happened in the 60s. So, um, they all died pretty young. So... Um, in 1971, both Gertrude and Paula were retried, and again, Gertrude was found guilty, um, and then Paula pleaded guilty on the second trial to a lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter, not second-degree murder, and was sentenced to 2 to 21 years like the boys were. She, she even once managed to escape despite being recaptured. And then after eight years of prison, Paula was released. And she moved to Iowa, and she changed her name. And she became a teacher's aide. (gasps) No. Yep. Mm -hmm. She was a teacher's aide. She was a teacher's aide from... She actually might still be alive now that I'm reading this. She was a teacher's aide from, like, the 1980s to 2012. 2012. She should never be allowed near children. Yeah. And or anyone. I agree. She was suspended from her position in 2012 when an anonymous caller tipped off the school district that Paula was convicted of the death of Sylvia Likens. I, I can't believe it took them that long to find her. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, else to find her. Gertrude was granted parole on good behavior on December 4th of 1985 and then in 1990 died from lung cancer. The other, every, I think Paula, again, might be the only one alive. I didn't check, but I know, like, the boys all died before they were, like, 60. They died pretty young. Um, so, yeah. And then Jenny um, made a statement when Gertrude died saying how, um, how it was a relief, kind of, to know that, like, nobody else would be affected by her. And um, to attempt to end this on a, a slightly more positive note, In June 2001, a six-foot-tall granite memorial was formally dedicated to Sylvia, her life and legacy in Willard Park on Washington Street, Indianapolis. The memorial itself is inscribed with the following quote. This memorial is in memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. And then this case is actually the catalyst for Indiana adopting the mandated reporter law um, because it was not previously in the state. But. And then lastly, in 2010, the Sylvia Child Advocacy Center was founded with a mission to assist child victims of abuse, neglect, and to minimize the ongoing traumatic effects experienced as a result of their ordeal and to undertake a relentless pursuit to prevent child abuse. And that is the very tragic story of Sylvia Likens. I don't have anything I can say to 
Yeah, to laugh at the end of this. I know. It's really sad. I might, I won't revisit the gruesome parts of this case, but I am interested from a psychological perspective how one person got all of her kids to participate, and neighborhood children too, to participate in the abuse of another person. Um, But yeah, so it's a very, very sad story. And if you are interested, it was The Girl Next Door and an American crime. I've only seen an American crime and then the other one for the Texarkana murder was the town that dreaded sundown. And uh, yeah, so those were my two Halloween cases. Wow. We can go ahead and end it there because there's no way we could end this on a more positive note other than the memorial. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that things are changing and they're trying to do better and she has a foundation now and I mean, you can go online if you Google the Sylvia Lakin's Child Advocacy Center. They accept donations for their foundation to help with working with DCF and getting kids out of abusive homes. So if you have uh, some spare change you would like to donate, they do accept donations online. Okay. Would you also be able to put that in the... Yeah, I can put it on Instagram or yeah. in the description. On, mm-hmm. I don't know how it works, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> I can send you the link. <laughs> yeah, so, um, well, you guys can always email us with any other horror movies inspired by true crimes that you want us to cover. And we'll attach the link yeah. in Instagram. I hope everyone has a much more fun Halloween and yeah. stay safe out there. Please stay safe. Yes. And this has been another episode of Live, Laugh, Live, or Mortis. Oh, shit, I forgot to do that. Okay, we'll do it one more time. Oh, no. Okay. And this has been another episode of Live, Laugh, Live, or Mortis. Mortis.